All right, as promised, the top of the show, we're going to be joined now by our old pal, Ed Martin. So we're happy to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Ed. Thanks, Doug. And you know what? Get, let's do a little bio. I mean, I mentioned that, you know, you're a radio guy, you're a, you're a lawyer by trade, but uh, you've got an extensive radio history and you've been a teacher and stuff. Uh, give me the thumbnail sketch of your background. Oh, my gosh. Um, let's see, practiced law for a long time, lived in Atlanta and Nevada City, where I currently live, um, had been a, a community radio guy here, forest ranger, fire lookout, um, city planner, uh, I forget what all else, but, <laughs> you know, college radio is an old love and, and hard to stay out of it for long. Well, you're eminently qualified to uh, to serve as our wingman here in this uh, pro- this segment, or most of it, as we kind of kick the things around. Well, let's start whatever you want to talk about. I think you talked about, uh, mentioned that the inaugural might be an interesting topic. Well, I'll, I'll go back even before that. One of my uh, other uh, things I do is I'm the ballot box officer at the Nevada City Precinct. So when you go in to, to put your vote in the ballot box, I'm the guy that's standing there helping you with it. Okay. Um, and so we, we go along 12 hours, and, uh, you know, there, there's been this horse race narrative. Oh, it's a, it's a horse race. Who's going to win? We don't know. And, of course, most of us said, wait a minute, you know. Sam Wang, Nate Silver, John Cassidy, 99% Obama, you know, what all, what is all this? But end of the day, you know, we've been open, what, 13 hours and finally get to close down the polls and run the first tally tape from our, our you know, ballot box. And granted, Nevada City is considerably more uh, progressive than the surrounding area, but yeah. it's 6 to 1 Obama. Wow. I had to laugh out loud, you know. It's just like, yeah. So, but I was watching the L.A. Times uh, map through the day, and they were considerably later at calling it than, you know, the the other national um, trackers. Well, you know, I, I was in Vanuatu when all this was going down. Ed did not have my finger on the pulse of of the election here in the states, but it well, did it did seem to me even in, even in a foreign country like this is looking really bad for Romney. Why can't they just say so? Well, then there's no story. Yeah. You know, that was that was always the thing. And I don't know. I mean, I just didn't, I never thought he was a strong candidate. He didn't run a, he didn't really have much of a ground game. He didn't do many events. I mean, it was an event or two a day. It was just like, this is like Bob Dole or something. You're not really <laughs> trying, you know. But, you know, if, if Karl Rove couldn't steal it, it, it wasn't done. So. Apparently not. All I can say is any presidential candidate whose favorite book is L. Ron Hubbard's Battlefield Earth, that well, there's a problem there. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's just odd to me. But but you know, uh, luckily I, I think most of my contact with Scientologists has been hitchhiking or, or picking up hitchhikers over the years, and they <laughs> well, have interesting views. We won't go into that one today. Well, there's an interesting new book out uh, by Lawrence Wright about the Church of Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard that I find to be absolutely fascinating. But uh, We'll, we'll defer that to another day. Absolutely. No, no. Well, anyway, the inaugural, you know, it, it, was, it was still a huge crowd out there, three-quarters of a million. It wasn't the, the you know, epical moment yeah. of, of 2009, but, um, you know, big crowd turned out, good speech, lots of enthusiasm. Um, uh, you know, takes me back. The, the inaugural night of 2009, the the Republicans got together and had a meeting and said, "Okay, now how are we going to stop everything this guy's trying to do yeah. that night?" You know? Yeah, right. It, it was just amazing, and and to see him be so agreeable to waste all that time where, 
you know, they had the, basically had the supermajority and not take initiatives and then not plunge ahead with a, with a health care bill and not do all sorts of other things that could have been done. You know, the guy has always played the long game. Yeah, well, I hope that he does turn out to be, as people think, the sort of centrist that's going to. I think your words were let people come to him. We were, we were sending emails back and forth. Uh, well, we, we all suspect that he's abandoned this uh, I'm going to bring everybody together uh, kumbaya sort of approach he did in the first term, and I think people are ready for that. The total number of all the filibusters ever is less than the number of the ones in his first term. I did not know that. It may have been a New Yorker piece. Somebody did a fairly extensive analysis, and, and it's just off the charts, you know. It's just never been done like this before, you know. Huh. Um, and, and, of course, you know, now it's a procedural thing. Nobody has to do anything. They just put their hold on and go home for the yeah, weekend. I, I, don't, I, I recall filibuster being something in the old Jimmy Stewart days of a guy talking, taking, you know, drinks of water and blah, 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 and it seems like they, they sort of put it on autopilot. You've got autopilot filibuster now. Exactly. You just say, we're not going to take it up, and, and you get to this. I mean, at one point it was two-thirds, you know. I think it was LBJ that got it down from two-thirds to 60%. But, oh, you know, the, the, the South perfected that because they weren't going to have any civil rights legislation. and It didn't work in the end. I mean, yeah, you can, you can, you can try and delay stuff, but I, I don't know. You delay it until the point it's basically, you know, enfeebled on arrival. And, you know, South Africa, they have the state power, but they don't have control of the economy. So looks like the Boers won to me. Yeah, well, maybe so. <laughs> in maybe the so. South, I mean, the same people are essentially still in control. They just changed party hats. Yes, yes, indeed. It is truly ironic, I think, to think that the Republican Party started out as the anti-slavery party. I mean, in Georgia now, where I'm from, every single constitutional office, Secretary of Agriculture, Attorney General, Secretary of Labor, Governor, everybody are Republicans. I mean, right to the bottom. And, Boy. of course, the, the contractor, who's now Secretary of State, uh, who represented half of gerrymandered Athens, where the University of Georgia is, the other half represented by the guy that said that evolution was a lie from the pit of hell. Um, <laughs> and those are the two representatives for the big university town. Um, wow. He proposed closing the state archives. They had a $3 million a year building to service, but he thought he'd save a million dollars by firing all the staff and closing the state archives. That's fiscal responsibility. Oh, yeah, I think about 20,000 people signed petitions to stop that, and so... They've had to come off of that one. But, but you know, I, you'd like to think that this notion that people who have made it plain that they will do anything rather than play ball with you are not people you want to, you know, set up a ball game for Monday with. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, I don't know that Obama is a, uh, by nature, a, uh, I don't know, not, not that he's not forceful, but, you know, he's, he's not going to be the guy to, grab the commanding heights at the beginning. He certainly didn't prove to be that, but uh, let me run this one past you. The Republicans, I got an article in front of me, GOP sinks electoral college overhaul, and they show this picture of Republican National Committee Chairman Reince Priebus. Now, I thought, wasn't Reince Priebus that, three, that three-headed dog guarding the gates to hell? I, I, I don't know. I Maybe I'm With wrong. With a name but... like that, it's just so <laughs> amazing. But, yeah, the, the interestingly, about 20-something years ago, I put on a seminar with the state bar of georgia about representing unpopular clients uh-huh. state 
uh, individual rights section of the state bar. And there was this, we did a lot of planning in advance to make sure we got everything. You know, the the public defender with 200-something cases asking the judge not to assign her anymore and <laughs> getting the file thrown at her for her pains and all that. Well, this guy came around to these planning meetings, and he was in some, you know, international laws kind of thing. And, and I thought, you know, who is this guy? What's he doing looking for a check? Hans von Spakovsky. <laughs> Unbelievable, and here he is years later. You know, voter suppression whiz for the Republicans. It's like I don't know. I don't know much about this guy. You're gonna have to educate us in the future. Yeah, he ended up on the Federal Election Commission, and he's the guy who came up with all this caging and. Oh yes, I do remember something about this this character. Yeah, it was so amazing. Yeah, just Hans von Spakovsky. Look him up. It's it's just amazing. But you know, no voter fraud having existed. They they puff and blow and puff and blow and act like there's something to it and you know there's been systematic disenfranchisement and and um the latest scheme is to take down the winner take all electoral college vote and then well no but my understanding it is in 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 the blue states the red states they want to leave voting in block right right. exactly exactly um and and then what you're going to do is go into it by congressional districts and so the gerrymandering in in particularly in 2010, but 2000 and the immediate aftermath, the first time there had been substantial um, intra-census, uh, you know, between the census's reapportionment, yeah. like Tom DeLay did in Texas. Um, and so you have these, these uh, supermajority Democratic districts that are mostly urban, and then you have all these Republican districts, and they're going to assign it by district so that, that rather than saying you know, this person won the state popular vote, so he gets all the votes. It'll turn out that, that despite Obama winning Virginia by a substantial, substantial amount, Romney would have gotten nine electoral votes okay. and Obama would have gotten four. Yes, listeners may want to go on the web and dig around. Somebody sent me an email that was hilarious that showed how under this scheme the electoral votes would have broken down, and in every case Romney would have been either the winner or really narrowed the gap of to where it was a dead even, where it was a dead heat, right? And and you've got these, you know, states like um, Wisconsin, Michigan, and all that right. have, are historically Democratic states, but are currently under the in the grips of some Republican administration, and they're going to drive that all the way down. I mean, look at Virginia; they uh, uh, had a twenty twenty vote, and the eighty year old civil rights hero went to the inaugural, and they slipped the thing in on the on the vote and passed it. You know, twenty nineteen the day he was absent. So, uh, yeah, they're playing for keeps. I mean, this is serious business. Yeah. You know, they're coming off this this, um, uh, congressional district uh, scheme because it's so outrageous. But, you know, they've got whole office parks full of people cooking this stuff up. So they'll be back. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, but no, no, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Uh, They, you know, they intend to grab state power again and wield it until the children's lunch money is gone. I think you're right about that. Speaking of children, I'm going to put, have you put your lawyer's hat on and run this item past you, which Mr. McMillan supplied to me a few days ago, which is quite a barn burner. But let me just read from it. A five-year-old Pennsylvania girl who told another girl she was going to shoot her with a pink toy gun that blows soapy bubbles has been suspended from kindergarten. The family's hired an attorney to fight the punishment, which initially was 10 days but reduced to two. 
Attorney Robin Fickler says Mount Carmel area school officials labeled the girl a terrorist threat for the bubble gun remark made on January 10th as the girls waited for a school bus. And I'm reminded of the little boy in kindergarten who kissed the little girl and was thrown out for sexual harassment. Exactly. You know, it's just, I, I mean... Have, we, have insane people taken over school administration? Oh, oh they have. They have. <laughs> you know, if, if you've ever had a case before a county school board, you'll know there's no more sanctimonious crew than a, a local school board when they've got somebody else to point a finger at. Well, I've never had that experience. Have you? Oh, yeah. It's pretty crazy. Can, I mean, you, you know, you have a lot of fair dismissal rights that are currently under attack, but... Uh-huh. You know, it's it's like, oh, you know, that, he said this, he did that. That's just wrong, you know. And it's like nothing anybody would say anything about. But, you know, you, you get to set yourself up as the guardian of public morality like you were some small-town district attorney, you know, and off you go. The Yeah, the bubble gun. I mean, your whole world consists of people shooting each other on TV and video games and everywhere else. And if you say anything along those lines, suddenly you're a, a five-year-old terrorist out yes. of school. And, you know, all you need is get suspended once and, and it goes on your permanent record. You remember, you're old enough for that. It'll go mm. on your permanent record. Well, I guess I never got suspended. But never. Ne- then again, I never talked about uh, a soap bubble gun. So I guess I was a okay. soap bubble gun. It's just <laughs> so amazing. I mean, people bring a table knife to, to spread the peanut butter on their sandwich right. and they get sent home it's for just, zero tolerance. It's a ze- you know, I always think the zero tolerance policy should be renamed the zero brains policy. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, we're speaking with fellow public affairs host uh, on occasion, <laughs> fill-in public affairs host and and DJ and lawyer and public activist. <laughs> too, too kind, Doug. You're too kind just to, you know, fooling with what goes on around me. But no, no, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure. I, if you look so many places, I mean, essentially the public affairs requirement for commercial broadcasters has is, is essentially been, been just done away with. Right. Um, by the same token... You know, just a lot of what you get now are syndicated shows that nobody, you know, actually is is producing homegrown shows anymore, which, you know, I I put some of it back to the ascendancy of national public radio because, you know, before that, people did their own news, did their own public affairs. Then once you get into that national level stuff, then suddenly you have a couple of... uh, you know, Italian guys from MIT going honk-honk about cars, and <laughs> they spend, you know, those stations spend many thousands. Ed, I love that show. I love oh, I love the Maliazzi brothers. Oh, I, just wish, I just wish our local NPR affiliate had a locally produced public affairs show. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? I mean, you can't be bothered. You know, you're in a state capital of the largest state in the country, and you can't be bothered to do local public affairs. It's... I mean, one of the best things about KDBS to me is is that they go to that trouble that, you know, and and I have to say, um, Justin Groove this year's public affairs host doing a great job, Invisibility Radio on Mondays, and a whole lot of really good stuff. So, you know, you got to be. We, we've had a policy to bring on every public affairs host. We've missed a few, but we're going to have to go back and bring on bring on the new guys. Absolutely, I think you'll enjoy him. He's he's really taken it to heart and. Um, has, you know, hosted a weekly talk show. They had a slate for the next uh, round of state of uh, student senate elections on and talked about what they were doing and what they wanted to do. And I just, it's, it's a lot of fun, I must say. I, I'm really happy we've got it. 
Well, let me uh, let me let me close out here by having you put your lawyer hat back on. I, I want to run this one past you. Uh, Joe Mozingo article, L.A. Times reprinted in the B. Apparently, in Mendocino County, the feds are trying to get uh, information about people that uh, were trying to obey the law, the state laws about how to grow uh, grow cannabis. And there's a subpoena now from the. Well, they're trying. They're fighting over this. County attorneys are urging a federal judge to quash a federal subpoena demanding a wide range of information about the cultivation program. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? Well, you know, back in the days of the bootleggers and all, they had what they called the silver platter doctrine. If the if the feds came up with illegal um, evidence, they could just give it to the state, and it was by definition legal because there was no state. Um, you know, rule against uh, illegally obtained evidence like there was in the uh, in the feds. Even I did not know that. Through. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look up the silver platter doctrine. I mean, I'm not an abogado in this state. I've never <laughs> been admitted in California, so I'm not giving out legal advice. But you know, it's it's <laughs> old and honored, and, and you know, it's just it's just odd that an administration who can't put a single person in jail for in, in the penitentiary for all this bank fraud you know, is is going to incredible lengths to catch people, you know, and, and I'm certainly no particular defender of the way the, you know, the whole medical marijuana thing has not been dealt with in a sensible regulatory scheme so that we're laying out open for district attorneys and sheriffs and the feds and everybody to, you know, act in a arbitrary sort of fashion with people. Um, but, you know, to say, well, we're going to, we're going to have all this you know, resources dedicated to, you know, putting people in the penitentiary for growing marijuana when... Well, I don't know. I don't think you caught the stat we did to close the last segment with, because I know you were busy, but when we, we ended by noting that 663,000 people in 2011 were arrested in the U.S. for marijuana possession, 128,000 more people than were arrested for all violent crimes combined. Well, you know, when Willie Nelson on those... Public service announcement says 2,000 people are arrested every day because they smoke marijuana. You say, no, it can't be. And it is. It is. It is. It it is. is. It's so crazy. It's like, you know, we can spend all that money and, and all that, you know, resources. It's hard to say this is worse than all the you know, violent crimes in the, in the country. But look around and see where we put our money. Well, Ed Martin, it's been a pleasure. Have you, let's have you come back on uh, in a few weeks. We'll probably talk around fundraiser, Doug. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Perfect. Many thanks, Doug. All right, Ed. All right, in the 90 seconds we have left in today's program, we have an answer to that age-old question. How is it dung beetles are able to roll their piles of dung in a, such a straight line? I mean, who hasn't pondered that question? Well, according to a report published in Current Biology, the answer to that is nothing short of astounding. According to researchers at Sweden's Lund University, who checked this out pretty thoroughly, the dung beetles are using the Milky Way to roll balls of animal dung in straight lines. Researchers are convinced that when they sorted out various factors of stars, moon, and other celestial objects, that in the end... When the Milky Way was not in the sky, the dung beetles couldn't pull off the feet of rolling the balls straight. And of course, for those of you unfamiliar with the Milky Way, those of you who live in cities, it does create something of a straight line across the night sky. Note to the reporting on this piece, the dung beetle is the first known insect to use celestial navigation in this way. 
frankly, we take our hats off to those researchers who decided to pursue this avenue of investigation. We can only speculate as to how this came together. Yasvin, how do you suppose the dung beaters are able to roll the balls of dung in such straight lines? I don't know, Helga. That's a good question. This looks like a shoe-in for an ignoble award, but we love this study and want to talk about it at greater length uh, with some of our astronomically oriented friends, which we will do at some point in the future. Anyway, our thanks to Ed Martin and, of course, the indefatigable... Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time for more fun.